0: Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast, Episode 131, Stephen Friedland and Amy Overman, Neuroscience, Neutrality, and the Rules of Evidence. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Alex Nunn, from the University of Arkansas School of Law. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence and proof. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. Our Excited Utterance episode today is something of a novelty, because for the first time ever, actually, we have not one, but two guests joining us on the podcast. The first guest is Dr. Amy Overman the Assistant Provost for Scholarship and Creative Activity and Professor of Psychology at Elon University. Joining Amy is her colleague at Elon, Stephen Friedland, a Professor of Law and Senior Scholar at Elon University's School of Law. In my conversation with Amy and Steve today, we'll be talking about their new project, which is entitled Neuroscience, Neutrality, and the Rules of Evidence. And as that title implies, we'll be looking at the intersection of neuroscience and the rules of evidence. What does the scientific literature surrounding the human brain have to say about the federal rules of evidence? And perhaps more importantly, what does it have to say about the possibility and the normative desirability of a neutral playing field at trial? I always love these episodes where we have a chance to get some empirical insight on the rules of evidence, and that was certainly true of this conversation. I really enjoy talking and learning from Amy and Steve, and I hope you enjoy our conversation today. Amy and Steve, welcome to Excited Utterance.
1: Thanks for having us. Yes.
2: Yes.
0: Well, today we're talking about evidence law and neuroscience, which I think is such a cool topic. I couldn't be more excited for our conversation today, but maybe to begin, just to share what led you to that particular focus. I'm curious.
1: So Steve, I'll I'll say one thing and then pass it to you, which is that I stumbled onto Steve after he had already had a lot of knowledge of neuroscience and that's where the synergy began, but maybe Steve wants to share the whole history on his side.
2: Well, we both work at the same school, but we're working in different parts of the university. Amy is a neuroscientist and I am a lawyer. So you would think that the two of us would not meet, but somehow we did stumble into each other. And I am very fascinated with how neuroscience works and all the advances that have been made in the last couple of decades. And in talking to Amy, it really became clear that we are so cabined or so siloed as lawyers that we use this Socratic method, but we don't really know how thinking and learning work. So Amy illuminated that for me and we started meeting and having coffee and over coffee, we said we should write together. And that's how this article came about and I hope others to come.
0: Well, I think it's just a wonderful topic. And maybe because we have this chance to talk about neuroscience, let's focus on the human brain for a second before then returning to evidence law. So here, could you perhaps give us just a quick primer on neuroscience, some initial baseline background?
1: Sure. So a couple of things that are important to know are, one, that the brain is constantly processing information, but most of what we process is below our conscious level of awareness. So we're not even aware that the brain is taking in all this incoming information. A second thing would be that it's important to remember that the brain adapts and changes over the entire lifetime. A lot of people sort of think that the brain is set once you reach around 25, but actually it's plastic. And every experience we have changes the physical cells of our brain, the neurons. And that means it changes how we think and how we feel. So we can make intentional decisions to change how our brain functions, which is sort of mind blowing. So we can strengthen certain behaviors and thoughts, and we can weaken others with enough practice. Just the way that people think about learning new instruments, you can also do that with the way that you interact with other people. The last important thing to know is that the brain's a storyteller, but often the story it tells is not accurate. So when the stakes are low, that doesn't really matter. Who cares if the brain's accurate about your memory of Thanksgiving 1992? But you can see that in the legal system when the stakes are high, that it really has some ramifications.
0: I think that one phenomenon, if you will, that's increasingly well-known that I'm certainly aware of is implicit bias. Uh, What role does implicit bias play in the human mind?
1: Well, the brain categorizes the things in our world, and this is not a bug. It's actually a feature. It does it quickly and efficiently, and it's what allows us to organize incoming information. If we didn't have this, we'd be completely overwhelmed by the things that we see and hear and smell, not to mention our emotional responses to all of those things. Also, our brain likes to search for patterns because we wanna know how to predict other people's behavior so we can respond to it. And I mentioned that the brain is a storyteller. So all of this categorization and pattern prediction is going on below the surface of our conscious awareness and the brain's weaving it all together. And it does it quickly by what's called heuristic thinking, which is just a mental shortcut. So we can do this, we can process on the fly, respond appropriately. For example, we have visited Wendy's before, and then we go to Arby's for the first time ever in our life. We don't have to stop and carefully think how to interact with the cashier or the credit card reader, even though we've never been to Arby's because we've been to Wendy's before and the brain generalizes inside that category a fast food restaurant. And that helps us navigate. And we're doing this all the time. So categorization and heuristic thinking, those mental shortcuts is usually helpful. It makes us efficient. It makes us flexible. But the problem is we're systematically biased in our judgments and mental shortcuts don't work very well when we're thinking about human beings. Each human being is complex, we're nuanced, but our brain is set up to treat people as being like all the other people in the category that it created. So there's not a lot of room for nuance because it would slow down our processing. This leads to biases based on our prior experiences that we might've had with a single representative of a category. Another problem is that we're very generous in how we explain our own behavior, but we're not so generous when explaining other people's behavior. So if we're rude to someone, we'll explain it to ourselves as being the circumstances. We're tired or we're having a bad day, but at heart, we're a good person. But if someone else does the same thing, we tend to think they're a bad person, particularly if we perceive that they're not very similar to us. So you can see that this categorization of other people and the negative explanation of their behavior affects the processes of our legal system. And the way to help counteract this bias is just to remind ourselves, one, that the bias exists, and then two, to slow down our thinking so we can do more conscious processing, and that can be more dominant than the automatic processing.
0: It's really fascinating. And I want to follow up on something you mentioned, because this is such a cool and important area, particularly when we bring it around to evidence law. But this notion of the brain always making judgments and observations or constantly doing that. Why is that an important function?
1: Well, it's beneficial for us to predict the behaviors of others for survival. I mean, we have thousands of years of that. Now, in modern times, we want to be able to form collaborations to achieve goals or just move smoothly through social situations. So our brain likes to search for those patterns and help us predict people's behavior so that we can be successful in life. And we're born with that instinct to make judgments in order to determine who's trustworthy and who isn't. Even babies are really good at this. If you show babies that are about six to eight months old, two stuffed animals, and one of the stuffed animals is mean to another stuffed animal, and one of the stuffed animals is nice to another stuffed animal, and then you give the babies a choice about which stuffed animal to hold, they choose the nice one. So a large part of the constant judgment and observation is about whether we can expect support from someone and can trust that they won't harm us, whether that's emotionally or socially or physically. And this is a good thing. It helps us thrive physically and socially. But again, because our brain's a storyteller, we can sometimes end up with the wrong storyline because we don't perceive actual reality. The brain does not process reality. It's a filtered reality. And we certainly don't remember accurately. In fact, our memory is especially faulty because we don't record it and store it untouched in the brain. We reconstruct memories from scratch every time we retrieve them. So here we are reconstructing prior information. This is all going on below our conscious awareness as automatic and constant work of the brain. And we can sometimes make a mistake that has serious implications, especially when a situation is unfolding quickly or if we're not aware of how our brain works and most people are not aware of how their brain works.
2: I just wanted to throw in, Amy is fluent in this and for me, I'm just learning, but one thing that I thought was very interesting, we talk about implicit bias as if it's just one sea of bias and they've identified the neuroscientists and cognitive scientists, very specific biases at work For example, like noting that the specific ones sometimes have direct applicability to what we do in law and lawyering. For example, an illusion of competency where a lot of law students, once they go through the first year, think, okay, now I can do this, when no, you can't. And even when we graduate from law school, we're thrown out there as lawyers. No, we're not ready yet. And even as law professors, when we have our practice we really are not trained as law teachers, but yet we say, hey, I've been in a plane. Now I can fly it. So that illusion of competency is one. And another big one is confirmation bias. And this comes up a lot in trials where we really, according to the neuroscientists, we have these world views, and we're going to confirm what we believe. Cherry pick the facts. And we all know this. If you speak to somebody who is of a different political persuasion, these days, it's hard to talk about facts. It's really almost a post-fact world for us because we have these biases about how the world should operate. So I like this idea a lot and not just one sea of implicit or unconscious bias. There are specific biases that if we really looked at carefully and tried to work on, I think we'd be able to talk to each other better, we'd lead to more accurate results and we'd have a better legal system.
0: I think that's such a great point. And another specific perhaps manifestation here that caught my eye from your article is this notion of our brain constantly sorting in groups and out groups. Amy, is that also perhaps an important manifestation or important function of the brain here?
1: Absolutely. And thanks, Steve, for raising specific examples of our biases. Such a good point. So for in groups and out groups, as I mentioned, our species had to survive, and that was dependent on cooperation. And so We have this cooperation that advances us toward goals and is better for the good of the group. So our brain is already set up to identify in groups and out groups as a means of survival and achieving goals that we can't meet on our own. And we're really highly sensitive to whether we belong to a group. We talk about belongingness a lot at the higher education level because we are concerned about people feeling like they don't fit in. And everybody has had an occasion where they have felt excluded from a group that they thought was their group. So even though people are often painted as individualistic and competitive, and I'm not suggesting that behavior doesn't exist, if we stop and consider the way society functions, it's obvious that much of human behavior is in service of the goals of whatever group people perceive themselves to be in. So the concept of loyalty is based on in-groups and out-groups. We only expect loyalty from people that we perceive to be in our in-group, and we only accuse people of disloyalty who we perceive to be in that in-group. And that's why we feel such a sense of betrayal when someone we thought of as a friend or a colleague acts in a way that harms us. And we don't feel betrayed when a stranger does something to harm us. Because there's this basic human expectation that our in-group is going to work together for the goals of the group. In fact, a large part of the concept of snitching is based on ideas of who's in the in-group and who's in the out-group. And the dark side of this categorization of in-groups and out-groups is that we don't treat out-group members very well. We perceive members outside our group as being less human than us and feeling less pain than us, being less intelligent than us and being more alike with one another, sort of monolithic. And the evidence for this is in the neural response of the brain. We literally feel the pain of others more when we think they're in the same group as us. And this is part of broader empathy that we feel for those in our own group and don't feel for those outside our group. There's really interesting study that showed a hand either being poked by a needle or touched with a Q-tip while they recorded brain activity. And labels were randomly assigned to the hand, Christian, Jewish, Hindu, Muslim. And when the hand was perceived as being the same religious group as the person viewing the hand, the pain response in their brain was much higher than when they thought the hand belonged to a person in another religious group that wasn't their own. And other studies have shown that we view people in outgroups as being more like objects than like people. And so it's why talking about people as if they're in another group works to dehumanize them. Homeless people versus employed people, prisoners versus guards, Republicans versus Democrats, like Steve mentioned. So- it's really interesting how the in-group, out-group has ripple effects into our daily interactions.
0: That is such a great primer on neuroscience and the brain function generally. But what I want to do now actually is pivot ever so slightly and reconcile what we just learned about neuroscience with, of course, the federal rules of evidence. So first, perhaps here, what are some of the ways that our evidentiary regime perhaps tries to limit the effect of cognitive biases?
2: Well, I think I'll jump in here as a former federal prosecutor, Alex. Uh, Perfect. Seeing the trial system in action. And of course, what we think of as trials is not in and of itself important to our country, but we need to have confidence that those trials lead to accurate results, that they're legitimate. Otherwise, that's going to undermine our system. And really, when we have a jury trial and someone's guilty, that better be the surrogate for the unrevealed truth. If that is not considered to be the substitute truth then the trial really is not going to be believed in by the country so we need to have trials that are accurate that are fair and that are uniform so biases have to be minimized if not eliminated and that really is about the process but i think as amy pointed out when we dig deep that's just not true there are going to be biases throughout a trial and i can start just with voir dire, voir dire. When you pick people, this really goes to what Amy was saying, you want people in your group, in the in-group, who will be able to identify with whatever party you represent, as compared to people in the out-group who are going to actually look upon you with suspicion and what you are saying, what story you're telling. And again, in trials, the way that Amy has described that we see, they're just competing stories. That's really what they are.
0: So, Steve, would it be fair to say that the federal rules of evidence perhaps even incentivize, at least in some areas, lawyers to try to weaponize bias to some extent?
2: Yeah, I think that's a fair statement. And I think when we look at the federal rules, they're only looking at unfair prejudice, not all prejudice. The one thing I think that the rules try to balance is how much good evidence do we allow knowing that the good evidence has baggage? that there's gonna be some prejudice when a prosecutor shows a picture of the crime scene and it's gory, that people are gonna react emotionally. And as Amy has just said, that emotional reaction is not gonna be neutral, it's gonna involve lots of different biases because that's the way our brains work. So lawyers are definitely gonna try to offer all the time prejudicial evidence, but prejudicial evidence that would not be rejected by the court so it can get to the jury they want to have the jury judge for them and it's only about unfair prejudice but the judges don't really know about this kind of bias and the rules aren't built in that way instead the rules have things like character evidence there are exceptions which allow for character which is exactly what we're talking about evidence that will influence and possibly cause the jury to decide in a particular way even though the facts of the main story don't support that.
0: We discussed this notion of implicit bias earlier as well. Do you see the federal rules of evidence as adequately minimizing the dangers posed by implicit bias?
1: So you're asking if implicit bias has been eliminated based on the way the system currently works?
0: Perhaps that'd be too idealistic, I think. Is it handled in an adequate fashion? And perhaps here I'm asking a leading question.
1: (laughs) No.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And I would agree. And I'll throw in a particular rule. Rule 403 of the federal rules says that evidence shall be excluded if the unfair prejudice substantially outweighs its probative value. In other words, if it's substantially more hurtful than helpful. Well. One, the judge really isn't equipped to looking at how much bias will be elicited by evidence. The judge is going to use their own judgment. And as Amy has said, that alone is going to involve bias. Second, it's going to be given to a jury. And they are selected from the community. They're going to have a wide variety of biases. So it's not quite clear what the impact will be on the jury, but they're going to be using their biases as well. So the system is littered with biases. It's covered up. It's packaged, shall we say. So it looks like it's going to be neutral. But what we're doing is digging deep and seeing that not really. It's not going to be when you look at Rule 403 or 404B that allows for other character acts not offered for character purposes, propensity purposes. Well, the jury may receive it that way, even if it's not offered by the lawyers that way. So there are a lot of well-recognized holes, shall we say, in this chain-link fence that's supposed to keep out bias and unfair prejudice.
1: I think part of the problem is that because there are some acknowledgments of how people think that there's a false assurance that it's been taken care of when, in fact, it's almost worse than if nothing was being said and then people suddenly realized, oh, we should address this. It's sort of like, oh, we've already addressed this, so we don't need to think about it anymore.
0: I couldn't agree more with you both on this front. And one area that really highlights this is perhaps in the federal rules of evidence's expressed desire for neutrality. The federal rules of evidence, of course, try to promulgate a level playing field where verdicts will solely be decided by the evidence in this atomistic fashion. Do you take the pursuit of neutrality that we see in the federal rules of evidence to be a good thing in light of all these background biases and cognitive distortions?
2: I would say yes. I think that's step one in recognizing that bias can hurt the outcome and recognizing that we don't want to let it run unfettered, particularly with different groups. We want a jury from the community. That means everybody in the community. We want biases at least to counteract each other when they're in the jury room so that people can share their own views and that all voices are heard so in a sense the jury system is at least there to have not just one judge with the judges biases but we have a lot of different people who may have different approaches different worldviews. they may look at things differently and that's actually an advantage so i'm a big fan of the jury system i really like the adversary system i think everyone should be cross-examined on tv And that people who look at cable television need to have all these commentators cross-examined. Because I think that's one way of determining who, in fact, is really telling the truth.
0: Well, that's fantastic. And this whole conversation has been just wonderful. I have learned a ton and couldn't be more grateful for all that you have provided in terms of insight and knowledge. Both of you, that is. I have one final question for you both. What's an additional type of paper here that might shed additional insight on this particular topic? What's next for the literature on this front?
1: So I think we've already touched on something that is of personal interest to me that I've shared with Steve before, and that is helping other people besides the attorneys understand how the brain works. So the judges that are making decisions, and Steve's spoken to judges about the way the brain works. And I think that's really important because we have powerful people making decisions about other people and they're using a tool that they don't really understand.
2: So when I speak to judges, Alex, I get a lot of times, I I got this, I've done it for 30 years. The problem is doing it the same way for 30 years does not indicate growth or is not consistent necessarily with what the literature about the brain says. And let me just say, the judges are very receptive to this kind of thing. They, I found not only are they really smart, but they want to learn. So most judges, they're saying, okay, how am I approaching this? And what does this mean? The one thing that I've learned about expert learners from Amy and others is that they constantly assess what they're doing. And I think that's something that in our legal system, we need to do more. How's this working? What can we do better? I think that's a next step as well. There are a lot of next steps, but I think this kind of information is really useful to not only us as law professors, judges, law students. I know I've changed the way I teach thanks to Amy and this information because just because I'm teaching doesn't mean they learn. And that's what we get from this. Just because we say, here's the evidence, doesn't mean it's taken the way we think it is. And that's what Amy's work is all about.
0: I could not agree more. I think we all have so much to learn from this. This has been a wonderful conversation. Thanks so much to you both for coming on the show.
1: Thank you for having us.
0: Thanks, Alex. So as I mentioned at the top of the podcast, I always love when we get a chance to dive into the scientific literature, to get a look at empirical insights and reconcile those insights with the rules of evidence. Because I think what we find with increasing frequency is that despite the fact that the federal rules of evidence in particular are supposed to gatekeep um, the reliability of evidence in the courtroom, despite the fact that they're supposed to guard against junk science from coming to the fore at trial, the federal rules of evidence themselves contain certain provisions that could use some empirical upkeep. And I think Steve and Amy were exactly correct in our conversation today that the federal rules of evidence could go much further in combating implicit bias, bias that has a great tendency to distort fact-finding at trial. But I want to highlight in particular a question I asked at the very end of our interview. And that's this notion of neutrality at trial, and in particular, neutrality in the rules of evidence. Now, intuitively and instinctively, we gravitate towards the notion that, of course, we want neutrality in the rules of evidence. We don't want a finger on the scales either for or against a defendant when we're trying to determine what happened in a case. And admittedly, I think that that's where I gravitate ultimately. I think that neutrality is an important value that we should pursue. But it's important to recognize at the same time that not all share that perspective. And indeed, a mirage of neutrality can often hide a more nefarious reality. And some of the most incisive and important even articles in the evidence literature question whether neutrality not necessarily is a good ideal in the abstract, but when reconciled with the descriptive reality that we live in, is a distinct possibility. And I think here, a first, and obvious example is a fantastic piece that many of our listeners will be familiar with. It's by Jasmine Rose Gonzalez, a professor of law at Boston University, and it's entitled Toward a Critical Race Theory of Evidence. And in this article, Professor Rose Gonzalez notes that even if a rule of evidence appears race neutral or just generally neutral on its face or in its application, it needs to be scrutinized in a critical fashion because oftentimes, as I just mentioned, neutrality can be a mirage for some sort of power hierarchy that is ultimately disadvantaging a certain subset of individuals or a subset of defendants. And although I'm certainly no expert. In critical analysis, I think that that perspective is so fascinating and so important, particularly when reconciled with emerging understandings regarding neuroscience and how the human brain works. You know, you'll recall that we heard Amy today discuss how the human brain is constantly making judgments, constantly sorting in groups and out groups, constantly being subjected to cognitive biases that distort effective decision making and really raise questions about the viability of a neutral playing field. So too, did we hear Steve mention today that despite these cognitive distortions and biases, the federal rules of evidence are simply not going far enough in creating a neutral playing field in really achieving that ideal of neutrality. So then I think this is the question that we're left with. Is that ideal of neutrality that is perhaps desirable, is it obtainable? Or given what we're learning about the human brain, is it necessary to have an evidentiary code that more proactively puts its thumb on the scale to combat these cognitive biases and distortions? It's a really fascinating question, a question with very important ramifications, and I'm so thankful for Amy and Steve teeing up that question today. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the University of Arkansas School of Law. The producer of Excited Utterance is Ed Chang, and the production editor is Madeline DiPietro. Music for Excited Utterance is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir, under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host, Alex Nunn. And I hope you'll join us next time when we tackle another piece in the world of evidence and proof.